We've been walking through the book of Esther this, uh, the past several weeks, and man, has it been quite the journey. It's amazing to look at this often overlooked book and sit with some of the uncomfortable questions, some of the hard things that happen in here, and wrestle with them and, and, and try to learn and grow from them together. Today, we're going to be in chapters 6 and 7, and so we're going to do a quick recap here of what happens in the first five chapters of this book to lay the stage for what's about to happen. So it's about 500 BC, and we are in the Persian Empire, which was the superpower at the time. The king's name was Xerxes. And as the king of this superpower, he was the most powerful man on the planet. Well, Xerxes' first wife embarrassed him in front of a bunch of people, so he banished her from the kingdom and found a new wife, who happened to be named Esther. Now, Esther was an orphaned Jewish woman, but nobody knew that little tidbit about her. She kept that secret because her adoptive father, a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, told Esther to keep that quiet. Keep it a secret. Don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. One day, then, Mordecai was hanging out near the gate in front of the palace, and he overheard a couple of guys who were up to no good plotting to assassinate Xerxes, assassinate the king. Mordecai reported that what he had heard, and it got to the king, and the, and the, the assassination attempt was, was stopped, and the king's life was saved. Now at this point, we introduced to another man by the name of Haman. Now Haman is King Xerxes' right-hand man. He is the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire, which means he's the second most powerful man in the world at this point. And spoiler alert, Haman is not a nice man. But because of his high position, everyone in the kingdom, whenever Haman passed by, was supposed to bow, to show him honor. And everyone did, it seems, except for Mordecai. He wasn't into that. He wouldn't bow to Haman. And Haman hated him for it with a level of hatred that is just off the charts. He wanted to kill Mordecai for not bowing, but not just that. Haman wanted to kill all of the Jews because Mordecai was a Jew. He hated the Jews. He had an excuse now to kill all the Jews because this one wouldn't bow to him. So Haman wanted to, and I quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, and plunder their goods. He wasn't content to just kill Mordecai. He wanted to eliminate the Jewish people once and for all. So Haman comes to King Xerxes and manipulates him, kind of tricks him into making an irrevocable law that on one particular day, all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire would be killed. So messengers go out with this law and read it to everyone in the kingdom. And the response of the Jewish people is one of shock and grief and bewilderment. Mordecai responds by by grieving and then pleading with Esther to try to change the king's mind. Now, this is a big ask of Esther because she could have been killed just for going up to the king without him first calling her. 
So Esther hesitates at first. She kind of pushes back a little bit, but then eventually she agrees. She agrees to go to Xerxes and plead on behalf of the Jewish people for their lives. Esther takes this risk. She goes before the king. And instead of having her king killed, the king says this. In chapter 5, verse 3, he says, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, this seems like a great time for her to ask him to spare the Jewish people from annihilation. But instead, she says, if it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. And then at the banquet that Xerxes agrees to go to, he asks her a second time. And she strategically stalls again. She basically said, so how about another banquet tomorrow night and then I'll tell you what my big ask is. The king agrees. Meanwhile, Haman loves these banquets. He loves hanging out with the royal couple. It makes him feel all special and powerful to be hanging out with the king and queen, just him. So he's on his way home one night just feeling on top of the world when he sees Mordecai. And rage consumes him. He can't handle the thought of Mordecai living one more day. So Haman's wife and his friends, he tells them about it. And and they're like, hey, you know what you should do? You should build a gallows of sorts. And then go first thing in the morning to the king and ask him for permission to kill Mordecai now. You don't have to wait. Do it now. The rest of the Jews, you can kill them later. But right now, just take care of Mordecai. Haman liked the sound of that. And with that, we find ourselves in Esther chapter 6. So let's start off with verse number 1. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Of all the things the king could have asked for to help him sleep, he chose this. He wanted the official record of his reign to be read to him. I don't know if he thought it was boring or what, but either way, he was like, I can't sleep, so read me a story about how great I am. He didn't ask for some wine. He didn't ask for a concubine or some warm milk or for his herdsmen to walk all of his sheep past the window so he can count them. He asks for story time. Now, these records that were kept were incredibly extensive. In fact, back in the 1930s, some archaeologists dug up a room that held the royal records of Xerxes' dad, Darius. Darius was king for 36 years, which is a long time. And when they found these tablets, there were more than 20,000 of them. At this point in the book of Esther, Xerxes had been king for about 12 years. So if we you know, assume that he kept records at a similar pace to dear old dad, then there would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 to 7,000 tablets for them to choose from to try to get him back to sleep. Six to 7,000 tablets. That is a lot to choose from. And lucky for Mordecai, they grabbed this one. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. 
It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Xerxes would have been shocked by this oversight. Honoring someone who has done something like saving the king's life from an assassination attempt, that had to be honored, that had to be made known in order to build loyalty. Someone who's almost always trying to kill the king in these days, right? So, so when someone uncovered one of these plots and brought it forward and, and saved the king's life, the king would want to make a big deal about that so that the next person who heard about an assassination attempt would also come forward. Honoring Mordecai would have been a way to build loyalty within the kingdom. And so even though it had been five years since Mordecai had saved the king's life, Xerxes wanted to do something to honor him. He didn't want to wait one more day before honoring Mordecai. And as we've seen Xerxes routinely do throughout this book, he wanted to get input from someone else before deciding how to proceed with this. And so we land in verses 4 and 5. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And thus begins the worst day of Haman's life. This is unbelievable. You couldn't write a story with more drama or irony or humor even than, than this if you tried. Talk about unlucky. Haman has the worst timing here. He comes to ask to kill Mordecai while the king's saying, I want to honor him. Now this impaling thing that Haman wants to do to Mordecai, some Bibles use the word gallows and hanging, but pull and impale is almost certainly a more accurate description because Impaling was the most common form of execution in ancient Persia. And I am going to spare you the details of how it was done. I looked it up this week because I had a general idea, but then I looked it up and I had to go for a walk. Like I, I, I had to clear my mind because it is horrifying, excruciating, and gruesome. I'm not joking when I say, please don't look it up. It's bad. It's amazing how terrible people can be to each other. So anyway, Haman is coming to ask to kill Mordecai while the king calls in Haman to ask how to honor Mordecai. So what happens next? Verse six. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Oh, Haman. That ego is getting the best of you. Haman assumes Xerxes wants to honor him. And so what would Haman say then? He would describe his perfect day. This king can give him anything in the world. And so Haman's like, oh, the thing I've been dreaming about. That's what I'm going to say because it's coming for me. This is my chance. And so what does Haman say? Verses 7 through 9. So he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king's ridden. Ooh, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. 
Let them robe the man the king delights to honor. Let them serve him. And lead him on the horse through the city streets. Proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, two seconds here. It's not like Haman wasn't already highly honored. He was literally the second most powerful man on the planet. And he's receiving private invitations to banquets with the king and the queen. I mean, come on. How, like, what else is he so, like? What more honor does he want than that? Well, apparently this. He wants to play dress up and pretend to be king for a day. That's basically what this request boils down to. Wear the king's robes. Ride the king's horse that has the king's crest. And have someone important parade you around town. Making sure all of your subjects know how wonderful you are. King for a day. There are not words to adequately describe how big Haman's ego is. But man, is it ever true that if what we're after is glory and honor and to be looked up to by other people, we will never be satisfied. Haman had it all. And he wanted more and more. But then things go south for Haman. As we read on, imagine Haman's face as he heard what the king said next. Verses 10 through 12. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai. He led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Man, the table turned hard on Mordecai. I mean, think about how hard of a gut punch this would have been for Haman. Not only did he find out somebody else was going to get to live out his perfect day. It was the man he hated more than anyone. And Haman had a lot of hate in his heart. Can you imagine how Haman must have felt putting the robe on Mordecai's shoulders? Helping Mordecai up onto the horse. Leading him through the streets. Shouting, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Nothing could have been more humiliating for Haman. But let's pause for a second and look at how lucky Mordecai got here. I mean, this was a really close call. Look how many things had to go just right for him just on this one night to save his life. First, it just so happens that the king can't sleep. Then it just so happens that he asked for story time instead of a glass of warm milk. Then it just so happens that of the thousands of tablets available, they grabbed that particular one. And it just so happens that they started reading the part where Mordecai saved the king's life. And it just so happens that the king thought to ask, like, hey, what do we do for that guy? And it just so happens that all this happened at the last possible moment. Mordecai is one 
lucky man. But is he? Should we call it luck? Kondo pointed this out before, but God is actually never mentioned in the book of Esther. The word God, absent. The word Lord, it's not in there. There also isn't a single supernatural event in this book. Not one. But while God's name is absent, God most certainly is not. He is unnamed, he is unacknowledged, he is unnoticed, but he is not inactive. God is clearly at work. Years and years later, some Jewish writers added a few of their own thoughts to this passage. And and instead of simply saying, the king could not sleep, they said, the Lord took his sleep. The Lord took his sleep. They were making explicit what is clearly implied here. Only God could do this. Only God could do this. In the book of Esther, we see God doing miraculous things in mundane ways. You know, as we we read through the Bible, we get so used to reading about the awesome displays of God's power, right? Like, Like parting the Red Sea, like raising people from the dead, like sending an earthquake to break his people out of prison. And we want God to show up in like that In our lives, we want the inexplicable, the miraculous, and the undeniable. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes God shows up in absolutely miraculous ways. But this is one of the reasons why the book of Esther is so, is such a gift to us. It reminds us that while God can do the spectacular and the supernatural, far more often he works in really normal, ordinary ways unseen, even boring ways. Things that we can't distinguish from normal life. Like keeping a king from being able to fall asleep. Like guiding a servant's hand to pick that one specific tablet out of the thousands available. You know, sometimes it feels like our faith would be stronger or easier if God showed up in these massive miraculous ways, but the book of Esther shows us that God is always at work behind the scenes doing little things, weaving together this glorious and beautiful picture. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't, don't acknowledge it, even when it's invisible to us because it hides among the ordinary things of daily life. God doesn't need the spectacular to move his plan forward. Just this past Thursday, Emily, my wife, she had an appointment in Fort Wayne. And so she left the house, she got in the car, and pretty quickly found out that we had a flat tire. Apparently, I had driven over a nail sometime the day before and didn't realize it. So she ended up borrowing my parents' van. And you know what happened next? Nothing really. I mean, she was planning to listen to a podcast on her drive, but she was running late because of the whole flat tire situation. So she wasn't able to figure out quickly how to hook her phone up to make it go through the speaker system. And she didn't grab her headphones or AirPods or whatever. So she just drove in silence and prayed. And then you know what happened? 
No? Yeah, I don't either. I don't. I have no idea what, if anything, happened. Or what may happen in the future. As a result of this. But I'm now curious about what God was up to. The annoyance of Xerxes not being able to sleep directly leads to Mordecai's life being spared. And, spoiler alert, the life of hundreds of thousands of people. The annoyance of a flat tire led my wife to pray. What's going to come of that? I I don't know. But maybe God put a nail in front of my car on Wednesday so that Emily would pray on Thursday so that he could answer that prayer sometime and bolster our faith. I don't know. But that's the thing when God works through ordinary means is that if we ever get a glimpse of it, if, if he gives us a glimpse of it, it's really only in hindsight. We, we can't see it while it's happening. Just like those Jewish writers who years and years later gave God credit for Xerxes' sleepless night, when Mordecai, when Xerxes himself, when Esther would have had no clue that God was involved. We can't see it while it's happening because it just blends in with normal life stuff. But sometimes when we look back, God gives us a glimpse of how he uses flat tires and royal insomnia to move his plan forward. And that can strengthen our faith in a God who is always there and always working and always in control, even if we can't see it. God goes unacknowledged all the time, but he is never uninvolved. He goes unnoticed every single day, but he is never unaware. He is never inactive. The book of Esther reminds us that God is always in control and always at work, even when there's nothing extraordinary going on. All right, back to the story. Haman gets done shouting the praises of his sworn enemy, Mordecai, and we pick up in the middle of verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Man, Haman got ditched by his people quickly. The very end of chapter 5, the chapter right before this, his wife, his advisors, they say like, you know what you should do? Go build a gallows, go talk to the king tomorrow morning, and go get Haman dead. You don't need to wait, go, go get him killed. You'll sleep better then. And so Haman takes her advice. And now he comes back and they're like, ooh, yeah, man, you're in trouble. Stinks to be you. No advice, no words of comfort, no plans on how to get out of it. Just, oof, you're doomed. So Haman, at this point, has been humiliated. He realizes he's in a very precarious position. He's been abandoned by his family and his friends. 
And before he can come up with a plan about what to do next, he gets whisked away to day two of banquet with the king and the queen. And with that, we hit chapter seven and things move quick. Chapter seven, verses one and two. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Here is the moment of truth. What's Esther going to say? How's the king going to react? What's going to happen? I mean, think about how sticky of a spot this is for Esther. She's sitting in a room with two men. One of them, Haman, is actively pushing forward a plan that would kill her and her entire people group. The other man, Xerxes, well, the good news is that if anyone can save them, it's him. The bad news is he's the one who just a few months ago approved them all being killed. You can't underestimate the courage it takes Esther to do what she's about to do here. She's making her appeal for justice to the one who signed off on the injustice. She's telling the most powerful man in the world that he's wrong, that he's in the wrong. And she's asking him to choose between her and his closest, most trusted advisor. Esther could have bailed right now. She had kept her national identity secret for five years from her husband and everyone else in the castle. She might think she could keep that under wraps and slip by while you know, other people kind of, it's bad for them, but not bad for me. But instead, Esther chose to stand with those who were facing injustice. She put herself alongside of them. Verses three through seven. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we were merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary and an enemy. This vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage. Esther is so cunning and courageous here. She absolutely played Haman like a fiddle. She, she played to his ego, inviting him to these exclusive banquets with the king and the queen just to call him out in front of the king. She had set him up Perfectly. And then when the moment came, Esther was ready. She knew what she wanted to say, and she spoke with respect, but she did not hold back. King, you've asked me what I want. Grant me my life. Spare my people. Who is it? This vile Haman. Esther also uses the exact words from the decree Haman sent out with the king's authority back in chapter 3. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. 
But what's interesting here is that Xerxes doesn't seem to recognize that order that he approved. You'd think that would ring a bell, right? Like if you sign an order that says, go kill everyone. It's not there for Xerxes. If it was, he would have known it was Haman. He wouldn't have had to ask, so wait, who did this? And if you look back at chapter 3, where Haman manipulated Xerxes into signing off on this genocidal plan, Haman never told Xerxes who he wanted to kill. Not once did he mention it was the Jews. He left it at some ambiguous people who were different and dangerous and could not be tolerated. And Xerxes trusted Haman so much, he just said yes. Now, pump the brakes for a second, and let's take a closer look at Xerxes here. Just a few months ago, Xerxes had no problem killing off an entire people group within his kingdom. No problem with it at all. In chapter 3, verse 9, Haman said, you should destroy them. And Xerxes replied, do with the people what you please. You should destroy them. Yeah, whatever you want. Go for it, Haman. Do your thing. But now, when this same plan gets said back to him, Xerxes is enraged. What changed? Be more curious, ask more questions, right? What changed for Xerxes? Did he suddenly grow a moral compass and realize that genocide was bad? I don't think so. I mean, even after this, Xerxes doesn't flinch when it comes to killing people. He doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Here's what changed for Xerxes. He had no problem killing off an entire people group within his kingdom until he realized the impact it had on someone close to him. Someone that he cared about. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that Xerxes and Esther had some wonderful romantic love story or some model marriage. Let's be honest, their relationship was ridiculously messed up. But over these past couple of chapters, we see that Xerxes cares about Esther. He shows her mercy instead of killing her when she approaches. He offers her whatever she wants, up to half his kingdom, not once, not twice, but three times. He keeps coming back to these banquets she's throwing, saying like, okay, please tell me what you want. I'm happy to give it to you, up to half my kingdom. So in spite of how problematic their relationship is he seems to care about her on some level and so when he realized that Haman's plot wasn't just about getting rid of some faceless group of people out there but it was about Esther Xerxes had a very different reaction and that's because proximity to people matters proximity to people makes us more compassionate. It makes us see them as people. And man, we are way more like Xerxes in this than we would like to admit. A lot of our strong opinions would change, or at least we would hold them with a lot more gentleness. If we had close relationships with people that are deeply impacted by what we think is good, by what we think is right, by what we think about these things. 
I mean, you can pick what group of people it is, but as long as we keep them as a, at a distance, it is easy to make snarky jokes, to post the mocking meme, to make harsh comments, to, to, to let hateful attitudes live within our hearts like Haman did. It can grow to this point where we are apathetic or even happy about the pain of these people we have kept at a distance. Immigrants, Muslims, the poor, addicts, the Chinese, trans people, women who have had abortions, the homeless, Palestinians, different political parties, take your pick. As long as we keep people at a distance, we run the risk of letting hateful attitudes live within our hearts. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the country of Jordan a couple of times to help a church there that was doing Syrian refugee relief. And in doing this, I got to sit with people in their homes, drink tea with them, and hear their stories. One woman, her husband had been killed in the fighting, and so she and her elderly father fled, walking 10 hours a night for nights on end. They barely had any food and they had to hide during the day so they wouldn't be killed. She did all this while caring for her two little boys, a two-year-old and an infant. She had to carry them as they walked hour after hour at night and try to keep them quiet so they wouldn't be discovered. This story was not exceptional. I sat with people who lost their elementary age son when a bomb landed in their kitchen. I sat with people who, with women who wept as they spoke about the fact that they didn't know where their husbands were or if they were alive because they got separated as they fled in the, in the midst of the chaos of the bombs exploding and the gunfire. Dozens of stories like this. And then I came back And a few months later, I was just grieved when I saw how many people were loudly approving a policy that rejected all Syrian refugees from coming to the U.S. I'm sitting there, heartbroken, thinking about this three-year-old boy whose mom, a couple years before, had carried him through the night. Who tried to comfort him. And pretend that everything was all right as they hid and ran for their lives. This three-year-old boy walked into the room, sat down next to me, and fell asleep with his head in my lap. Proximity to people changes you. It changes me. It changes me to be more like Jesus who sees hurting people and wants to have compassion for them. Because Jesus didn't keep his distance. Jesus didn't keep people out there. He didn't keep us out there as some faceless group. Jesus drew near. He became one of us. And he had compassion on us. Jesus drew near to sinners. He drew near to outcasts. He drew near to anyone who would have him come. 
proximity to different kinds of people makes us more like Jesus as we learn to love and care for more people like Jesus does. So as King Xerxes realized that it was Esther, he had a total change of thought and response to this law that he had signed. Verse seven describes what happens next. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine and went out to the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now this is quite a picture. Think back to what's been happening over the course of this book. Ready? We have Haman. He's this incredibly powerful man in a country where men are call all the shots and pass all the laws and even pass some laws that say, women, you have to do what your husbands say no matter what all the time, period. They pass laws to try to keep women in their place. Now this Haman, he's also the man who was enraged when someone didn't bow before him. Haman, this man who hated Jews with such a fury, he was trying to kill every last one of them. Where do we find him right now? He's on his proverbial knees, bowing before Queen Esther, pleading with her, a Jewish woman, to spare his life. It's such an ironic picture. This is unreal. Esther played this out perfectly. Haman was, had his back against the wall to the point that he did what would have been unthinkable to him just a week before this, bowing down to a Jewish woman, begging her for something. Now, before we move on, let's take a peek at Xerxes here because does anyone else find his reaction here a bit strange? He was so angry. He had so much rage. He took a walk in the garden. Why would the king leave? I mean, obviously it doesn't explicitly say, but this little stroll through the tulips and the hostas, it clearly wasn't to help him calm down. Haman knew that. Haman knew Xerxes well, and he knew Xerxes wasn't going out for a breath of fresh air to try to chill out. He knew the king wanted to kill him. So if Xerxes had already decided what he was going to do with Haman, why go for a walk in the garden? It's because he had to figure out how he was going to do it. Not what method, what excuse. What reason would he give for executing his right-hand man? Xerxes is in a tight spot here. How could he punish Haman for a plot that he approved? The decree literally had his seal of approval on it. Xerxes would have to admit that he had been manipulated and duped and he would look like a fool. And if there's one thing that dictators and kings don't like, it's looking like a fool. And beyond that, how bad would it look if it got out that he had unknowingly approved a law that would kill his wife? 
Xerxes knew he was going to kill Haman for this betrayal, but it seems like he's taking a minute in the garden to figure out how he's going to spin this so that it doesn't look like he's weak or foolish or anything like that. And lucky for Xerxes, Haman made this easy. Verses 7 through 10. Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching up to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is crazy. In a desperate attempt to convince Esther to show him mercy, Haman fell on the couch where she was. Right, Just so happens, right? Just so happens as Xerxes walks back in. Now, no man was supposed to be left alone with any woman in the king's harem. And beyond that, even if the king was in the room, if there were other people in the room, no man was supposed to get within seven steps of a woman in the king's harem. So when the king comes back in the room and saw Haman landing on Esther's couch, whether Xerxes actually thought Haman was attacking Esther or not, doesn't matter. Xerxes didn't care. He had his excuse. This is a capital offense. He's going after my wife. Kill him. And then in the end, the pole Haman had built for Mordecai was used to kill Haman himself. As Jesus would say many years later, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. It is amazing how quickly Haman's downfall came. This is less than 48 hours. It may even be less than 24 hours from when the king couldn't sleep to Haman dying. One day the Bible says Haman was happy and in high spirits, boasting about how great he was. He was the second most powerful man in the world. And then in a matter of hours, he was humiliated, abandoned by his friends and family. His evil was exposed and he was dead. This is such a sudden Reversal. Haman thought that he was going to be honored by the king and Mordecai would be executed. But instead, Mordecai was honored by the king and Haman was executed. There's an interesting parallel between the decree Haman wrote up in Esther 3 and something Jesus says in John chapter 10. In Esther 3.13 it says, Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews and plunder their goods. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the thief, Satan, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Plunder and steal. Kill and destroy. You know, when we look back at this story from Esther, it looked like Haman was winning. And a lot of times now, it looks like the devil's winning, if we're honest. Death and destruction, war, disease, mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting, injustice, abuse, addiction, racism, broken relationships, natural disasters, the world coming apart at the seams. 
And back in Esther's day, Haman had all of his plots and all of his scheming and all of his manipulation rolling along smoothly. It had been in the works for months and for months, and now it was beginning to take shape. The law had been signed. The impaling pole was ready for Mordecai. In just a couple hours, he would be dead. Just a couple weeks, and the Jews would be gone for good. Haman's grand plan was right on track. Until God gave the king a bit of insomnia at the last minute. In this sudden reversal, God brought injustice to a halt and Haman to his end. It's not too unlike what happened 2,000 years ago when it looked like death and the devil had won. Jesus was dead. Hope was dead. For three days, dead, buried in the grave. Until Jesus wasn't. Until Jesus was raised from the dead in a sudden reversal. John 10.10, a little more of that verse. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life. Jesus came and he flipped death on its head. He defeated death and brought life. Jesus wins. It doesn't mean that it looks like that all the time. But God is never out of control. He's never caught off guard. His plans are never off track. And in the end, the devil will meet the same end as Haman. The one who comes to destroy will be destroyed once and for all. And then the kingdom of God will be in its full effect. A kingdom that is good and just. Right now, in both miraculous ways and mundane ways, God is moving everything forward towards that kingdom. We may not always see it. We may not always notice it. But God is at work to bring about that wonderful kingdom. Where goodness and justice reigns. Where Jesus is on the throne and we will be with him and we will be like him. So until then, may we join God in his pursuit of what is good and what is just and what is loving here. May we fight the Hamans that are inside of us. The ways that we fester hate and bitterness and look at others with disgust and contempt, ways that we celebrate the pain of others. And may we become more like Esther, who spoke up for justice, even though it could be very costly, standing with the oppressed, even though she might die with them, and using her influence to help the hurting. Let's join God in what he's doing to bring about a more just, a more good world. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you can use things that we don't even notice. Little things to bring about your glorious plan. God, thank you that you're a God who is just who is good, that we can look to you, we can lean on you, we can trust you in all of this. 
Help us to trust that you are working, you are continuing to work, and you will always be working to bring about good. And God, may we join you in that so that we can continue to to act upon the prayer of Jesus when he said, let your kingdom come and be on earth as it is in heaven. So God, may we work towards that end. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.